Audioed 51. 51. The back 50 is the new back nine. All right, we're in the second half of the first 100 audios. I'm not going to talk much today for this intro because I have lost my voice. I've been talking too much. We won a big victory here in the hyper-local... Well, no, that's that's premature. We're, it's looking good that we are going to win a political victory we've been fighting for for two years now, which is to make this 1.5-mile segment of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, this one little nub of road, permanently car-free. Wow. And it's looking like... That's going to happen. The mayor came out in support of it. Wow. Rec Park and SFMTA both have compiled this massive study, and they're both also supporting it. So There's a war on cars. I've been doing a lot of talking and a lot of uh, vocalizing, let's say, in the last week or so to support that movement because it's getting really heated up. It's getting heated in the war on cars. Now there's a war on and, uh... I've lost my voice, and I'm about to go on tour to the East Coast, so i got to have my voice back. So I'm not going to talk a lot, but here I am, already talking a lot. Okay. Okay. Matt, the electrician, my friend Matt, the, the electrician, electrician, and I had a discussion very recently, and that's what I'm going to share today for the 51st audio. But to introduce Matt, for those of you who might not know of him and his music, what do you say about Matt? What do you say about Matt? What do you say about Matt the Electrician? I remember performing at Flipnotics in Austin, Texas when it still existed and Matt was booking that room and he attended an afternoon show that I did there and he was sitting in the back, expressionless, legs crossed, watching me and listening to me intently. And I knew who he was and I thought, wow, I hope I hope he's liking this. I hope I'm impressing him. And afterward, he said something to the effect of something like, You want to try to put on a performance next time? Or maybe try a little harder and, and uh, actually do like a performance next time. But he was being sarcastic because he was paying me a backhanded compliment that I did do a performance and he was insinuating that he respected that. At least that's what I got from it. Maybe he really was disappointed. But... That led to a great friendship that continues to this day, and he's just been one of the more supportive. He's just been one of the most supportive friends and musicians that I have met out there. We used to have these long coffees in the morning when I would visit Austin. We would gather at this coffee shop called Once Over and just talk for hours and people would come and go and we would just sit there sh getting increasingly jacked up on coffee just shouting at one another and uh, the shouting continues to this day <laughs> so much so that sometimes I lose my voice I really love Matt if you don't know his music you should check it out man he's got this new album that's great we talk about it a little bit in the conversation but it really is a beautiful album we imagined an ending I think my favorite is animal boy that's the one you know how you know how the first album you hear from someone is that you fall in love with that's kind of like always your favorite one no matter what happens because that's the special one well that's animal boy for me that was the first one i heard and i just love it i still love it he just launched a patreon 
Speaking of Patreon, thank you to the new subscribers, man. A bunch of people got on board last month with the Patreon 50th audio fundraising pledge drive, and that is so cool. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Patreon.com slash John Elliott and Patreon.com slash Matt the Electrician. You can support him and his music that way as well. He's always touring the country and world, so the internet can tell you when he will next be in a venue of some sort near you. And I guess I'll introduce him with his song about me. He wrote a song about me called John Elliott. (laughs) And it made me cry when I first heard it. We love you, John Elliott, wherever you are. And we're singing your song like it's the only one we know. Like it's the only time we've ever sung.
inspired me actually to respond with the I Love Austin song. That song was written as a response to Matt's song, John Elliott. And? And that song was written as a part of a song game that I was in for two rounds. There are the, all these song Matt. games. It wasn't really my thing. Where a group of writers will be... Email chain. And every week you get an email with a, a Something word you have to include it. in a song. And you're supposed to finish a song in that week. And I think it was The Family Grave. I think it was... I don't think it was just Grave. I think The Family Grave was the suggestion prompt for the second round, second and final round of the song game that I did with Matt and a group of others. In that line, the family grave is in the song I Love Austin, which was on the Live in Austin album. So Matt says that they love me wherever I am. And that's good to know, not many get to hear something like that. But these people that I mention and the ones I don't, this place and Matt, I hope they in it and he all know how much I love them back. I was born into a family and that family was fine and intact and alive until 1995 and then that family died and we went our separate ways. We made out the family grave on certain holidays. And the first round I feel like the prompt was the language of American teenagers, and I wrote a terrible song about that. I'll see if I can unearth that. You can listen to that. That's just a terrible song. Then the second round was The Family Grave, and I wrote I Love Austin, and then I was just kind of like... That's great that I wrote that. I feel like I got what I wanted out of this game. I'm not good at the regular... the regular writing, the, like, working man's... Working man's... Nashville... Nashville... Clock in at 9 o'clock every day and write a song. I wonder if that wonderful car driving by made it into the mic. I'm not good at that, but Matt, well, as one of his early albums is called, Matt is made for working. He gets up there, he writes every day, he punches the clock, he gets it done, and he's been doing it for anywhere between 30 to 180 years, seems like. So here is my conversation with Matt, the electrician. You've got a new album out, We Imagined an Ending. It's beautiful. Thanks, man. Produced by Tucker Martin. So everybody go listen to that. It's beautiful. And you know what? Per the conversation, I think, well, I don't know. I, la- I love a lot of songs on that album, but that song you wrote with Ida is beautiful. The conversation here is about co-writing. So what? talk about that song, the creation of that song specifically. 
Well, we we uh, we wrote that together. <laughs> I know exactly. It's like what what do you say exactly? That one we had intended to spend a day writing. We had like a day that we had off from some shows, and we ended up at this folk high school where I had a show the night before, and they put us up in like the dorms. So it was kind of like we we had the next day and we could just hang out at this place. But the night before, after the show, we watched um, Singing in the Rain. Right, that's right. Yeah, you told me this. Yeah, because I only I own like four movies on my computer, and that's one of them for whatever reason. And Ida had never seen it, and she said, "Oh, I, I've always wanted to see that." And I think the other I own like Ghostbusters and. Uh, <laughs> And those Kate Beckinsale uh, vampire movies. That would have been a very different song if we had watched uh, maybe any of those, I think. Yeah, okay. So here's something that I just thought of, though, that's interesting to me. When you're, and this might be different for you than for me, but when you're writing a song not with Ida, when you're just like writing a song, do you think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to write a song. I have a day off. Tomorrow is like a songwriting day. Or does it? do you have a private feeling of inspiration and write it uh neither really i mean i just write every day so i don't i don't really plan out writing days and but nor do i kind of wait for inspiration i'll I'll just you know that i write a lot from games so i'm in i have two games a week that i'm in so at this point i write i definitely write and finish a song on tuesdays and fridays and in between that, I'm just, you know, I, I, I do try to write every day. Is there a specific time that you write? No. I've, generally, I've, I've preferred writing later in the day to writing earlier. I don't like getting up early anyway. And then what I will do first thing sometimes is like free writing, I guess, as an exercise. You know, just total chaotic whatever comes out. Um, and I, I recently, a week ago or so, I bought a typewriter. And so I've... I have taken to sometimes in the morning when I'm having my coffee, I will like just type out whatever rolls off of my fingers. Isn't that loud? It's very loud. It's like a very loud thing to have. Like, a- But morning is not like my morning is late. You know, I tend to get up at like 9 a.m. Right. The album starts with the song Night Owls. Yeah. Everybody's out of the house already. So I can I can like type away on the show. So loud. It's very, this one's incredibly loud. And I'm also just a loud typer. Like my wife has pointed out that she doesn't even like to be near me if I'm typing on my keyboard. Might be she doesn't like to be near me. I don't know. But, but the keyboard, I think the typing, like the noises she doesn't like. That's interesting. So your experience of co-writing is actually not that different probably from your experience of writing by yourself because you intentionally do it regularly. So it's doing it with someone else. It's just like, okay, and now I'm writing. Writing time is someone else's there now. Yeah, I think the only thing that, that tends to change sometimes with a co-write, because you're kind of following, you're not following necessarily, but I think for it to work really well, you're at least giving up part of your... Yeah, agency or like... Yeah, I mean, if you try to maintain too much control in a co-write, like if either person tries to maintain too much, I think like each person involved in a co-write has to give up a little bit for it to work successfully. Yeah, I remember a specific moment from the song that Eden and I wrote together where she just like vetoed a chord because it was like too 
nice of a like too American of a chord. Ida is a is Danish, and it was, just had this like very American move to it, you know. And she's like, "Is there a better chord?" And that forces you. You're like, okay, I'm not gonna fight for this D chord or whatever, you know. Like, it forces you to find something else, and then you wouldn't have found that or wouldn't have done that if it were just you. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the point. Like, you know. If you're going to say no to stuff, it's not to say that some things don't work. So I think with co-writing though, um, and I feel this way kind of about being in the studio too, is if, if somebody suggests something, provided you have the time, provided it's not like, you know, crazy wild goose chase, you try the thing. So if, if somebody says, let's not go to the D chord, you go, okay, let's try, you know, the F sharp minor or let's, you know, whatever. And you start playing around. And it, sometimes you get to the end and you go, oh, so this other chord was totally better, great. Or sometimes you work through it and the other person goes, you know what, maybe maybe the D chord was fine. Yeah, but isn't that concept of better the most elusive, mysterious part of it? Like, what? who's to say it's better? What is better? In that moment, you know, one of the two, two to 18 people you have co-writing a song. All those, those pop songs where they have 18 co-writers, they're never in the room at the same time. The whole the premise with that, right, is that they're just getting sent around to various people to like tweak the bridge or change a couple words. Yeah, I think it's like it's like when a movie has seven writers on it. You know, it's like some guy took a week and added jokes or something. Yeah, so it's it's usually two people. I mean, I've written in a group of three, and I'm not I'm not a big fan. Yeah, so you, but you've done a lot of this. I mean, when I met you, you had just done the House of Songs. Was that the beginning of you doing a lot of co-writing when I was like 2012 or 10 or something like that? Yeah, the, the year before, like I think it was 2009 or so, was when the House of Songs was established in Austin. And Troy Campbell, the guy who started it, had kind of roped me in. Before the house even opened, he had kind of taken me out to lunch and I think primarily just because he he and I were friends and and he thought that I knew a lot of other songwriters in town I knew a few uh, but but he you know he's a few years older than me and I think he knew a certain subset of writers and musicians in Austin and he wanted to make sure he was getting outside of that group so he picked the brain of, a, of brains of a few other folks to bring in other writers so as a result, I was there kind of right when the house opened and the very first group of Danish songwriters that came over, I wrote with three of them. There were like four people there and I wrote, wrote with pretty much everybody. And then Denmark, as you know, it's a pretty small country and it's a pretty small music scene. And so these writers would come over from Denmark and they'd go home and whoever was applying to be the next person staying at the house would inevitably talk to them. And, say, oh, did you have fun in Austin? Like, who'd you write with? Oh, you got to write with Matt. Or you got to write, you know, whoever the, the couple of people that, that they wrote with. So I just ended up getting kind of requested to write with. So I spent a whole year writing with almost everybody that came to town. That was the first time I'd ever co-written. Of all those songs, how many of them do you still play regularly? None. <laughs> yeah. I never played any of them to begin with. I was just kind of dipping my toe into co-writing and I didn't, I didn't know what it was or what it, could be or but I was very open to just everyone that would come in would have kind of a different agenda and my regular writing regimen is kind of agenda free you know in fact if anything like 
ideally I don't want to think about what I'm writing about. I don't want to think about a theme. I don't want to, I mean, it's not to say that occasionally, of course you write songs that are, you know, for something or specifically, but in general, if I'm just writing, I don't try to, I try not to think too much. And when you go into these co-writing sessions, if somebody sits down across from you and goes, I want to write a song about Austin, you go, okay, like, how can I facilitate that? And I think that whole first year of co-writing, I was a facilitator. You know, I, some people would come to me and say, I want to do this. How, how can we put this together? Or they would come with, here's something I've written in Danish and I want to kind of translate it, but retain like, you know, poetic and rhyme structures and, and things like that. Ooh, that's cool. Like an adaptation. I did some things that were straight up translations, um, which was kind of fun too. But I felt that whole year really was in service to these other writers. And so they weren't my songs. Like some of them went on records. I think maybe there were at least four or five songs that ended up on records in Denmark. But I never, I couldn't even, I couldn't tell you what any of them were even called or like, uh, I never knew how to play them to begin with. Isn't that kind of the weird thing about it though, that you also, even when you write one that you do know or do still play, it doesn't feel like all of yours. It, there's something about it. All the songs that I've had a hand in writing, they feel like different to my heart than the ones that I just wrote by myself. Yeah. And I, I, I felt that way certainly with a lot of those ones that first year. But at the end of that first year, I went over to Denmark and I did the castle thing where I met Ida and a bunch of other cool writers. And out of that group of songs, I think I wrote four songs and three of them ended up on my next record. And those songs felt different to me. Like, I feel like if, if you claim it enough to put it on a record, I do feel like you have a different sense of ownership over it. That's interesting. At least for me, in my, in my experience. And staying, remaining friends with a lot of those folks and getting to talk songwriting over the years. So like Ida is a great example of somebody that I've done a ton of traveling with and more writing with and performing with. And she and I have talked about this, but like for me, that whole year writing with these Danes, I was the, you know, I was not the alpha in the co-writing relationship. And then when, by the time I went to the castle, I was so like calisthenically ready to write. And there were some of these other folks that were there from Scandinavia that had not done a lot of, like Ida had never done any co-writing. And so we get in a room together and I was very, uh, you know, a lot of the Scandinavians said that the Americans, myself and Scrappy and Danny were very controlling and, and, and kind of took over. And, you know, I think there's various reasons for that. But for me, I think it was feeling really like in shape to, to write after a whole year of doing this. And so it was easy for me to just kind of take over any narrative that popped up. Totally. I mean, when we, when we wrote Accidental Thief, I was like, I had to go out to dinner beforehand and like get all stoked up for it. Cause I was nervous about it. It was like a date right. to do it, you know? And it, and I don't remember, I'd, I think I'd written some songs together before that, but that one, it felt very intentional. It was, there was something different about it. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is, so I think that's a great song. I love that song. You loved it enough to put it on an album and title the album that song. Sure. But then our next song was a complete failure. <laughs> 
There was one guy that liked it. I feel like there's one guy that like commented on a YouTube of it and said it was a great song. Why is that song not as good? What's what makes this what? Let's end there. Like, what makes a song good? Why is that song better? I always think about this. Like, why is there object? There is objectivity. There is objectivity. There somehow in art, which is inherently subjective, there's objectivity. Like, which album is "Welcome to the Occupation" on? Which REM album? In your opinion, there's. No, there is. What what album is that? That <laughs> REM album you were just listening to? Uh, Document. Yes. Document is a better album than Collapse Into Now or whatever the last REM album was. I mean, but again... Isn't it? Well, no, because so much of that is colored by... I mean, think about... I was reading something the other day, just, you know, not the first time I've read this notion, but the idea that, like, you don't like songs specifically because of the musicality of them or the way that they sound or because this chord was played or that word was said, you like songs because they appear at a certain point in your life or uh, they are, they come along with a memory that you, you know, you, you cannot objectively listen to Bruce Springsteen or you too without placing them in your life at the times that you heard them. No, they're objectively awesome. I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but that's the thing. If they were, then everybody would agree with you. Everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was this. I mean, I, I know your point, and I definitely understand it, and probably agree with it. But I do think that if you played a hundred people on the street, "Accidental Thief," and what was that other song called? What did we call it? skeleton trees or something no that's that was the line i kept wanting to use that line and you kept vetoing it it was um i'm not what how, how did it go the no idea now i might be a fisherman walking on a broken lake know the world of maritime and the bells in the harbor ring Rope breaks Tie a knot Heartache I don't remember When it's time to go or something like that was the when it's time to go there's a video of you playing it with me at McCabe's that's the only existing version of it basically yeah um, now I might be a pioneer tumbling tumbleweeds taking on a new frontier with my in my family Circle The wagons Fight in And drag it all Behind us Saying anything 
might regret for all I know and it's not even up to me when it's time to go Now I might be St. Christopher A world on my back Hung up for a criminal A traveler, a souvenir Devil's redemption John Elliott, everybody. Anyway, if you played that song and you played Accidental Thief for 100 people, I would bet that 95% of people would choose Accidental Thief as the better song. Well, I mean, I think what I would throw in there, just to mess it up, is, is, uh, is that who are those 100 people? And, you know, are some of them... They're a all U two fans. <laughs> are some of them a seventeen year old that is that has recently had their heart broken versus is one of them a sixty year old? Because, and you know, I mean, I think about this a lot. I think about this probably way too much, like way more than I should. But I am of the belief that like there there are so many songs and writers that I think are so much better than whatever they've been afforded in this life and this career or whatever. And there's no way for me to extricate my personal feelings about some of these writers. Some of these writers are my friends, you know, people that I, that I know. And that has to inform how much I like or don't like their songs. 
I mean, I've had I've had bands and songwriters that I've absolutely not been interested whatsoever, and then I'll meet somebody like at a at a festival, and and you go, oh, this is a nice person, and then you go and you re-listen to their songs, and you go, oh, these are pretty good, and it totally changes the way that you're that you're listening. Experience absolutely affects, you know, the way that we relate to art. Exposure is a big part of that. So something something that we've all been exposed to ad nauseum, whether we want to or not, you know, say Taylor Swift or Adele or, uh, you know, Harry Styles or whatever, like you can't, you can't with the phone and the, and the computer, like you, you can't actually escape that stuff, even if you want to, like there's an awareness at some point you hear those songs and the more exposure, it might make you dislike it more. It might make you like it more, but you can't deny that there's just more exposure. There's just more of it. So you're a, there's an awareness there and you don't have that awareness with something that you're never exposed to. Right. But yes, totally agree. And the point you make about where a person is when they encounter a piece of art is definitely a big part of their response to it, which I didn't even plan on this, but this will be a great. (laughs) Did you see the French dispatch? Oh yeah. We just saw that. What did you think of that? Um, I loved it. I thought it was great. I think with all Wes Anderson movies, I need to see it a couple more times to fully, even while I was watching it, I thought, Oh God, I have to see this like two more times before I can really, really form an opinion. But I loved it. In all honesty, Matt, that is the angriest I've ever been while experiencing a work of art of any kind. <laughs> I ha- I'm serious. I hated that movie so much. Uh-huh. And, like, I, I, I could not take it. I, I hated it. I had to get up and leave for 20 minutes and then go back in. Well, sure. I mean, I mean, Wes Anderson is the anti Pearl Jam. So I understand why. No, listen, you have, there's a, there's a, <laughs> There is whatever. I'm not going to fight it, but the the point is, the point is for me to have had that violent a reaction to it, there must have been a personal context also involved because I was wearing a mask. I don't know. Who knows why? Because it was the first time I was sitting in the theater in two years and uh, not able to like pause the movie and go get some watermelon or something. I don't know. That'll piss you off. No watermelon. God, I hated that movie. God, I hated that movie. And I think if you went up to people on the street and you showed them the French Dispatch and you showed them Rushmore, 95% of people would say Rushmore is better. See, but again, I I just don't, I don't think that is true. I think that what exists right now is there was an overexposure of Rushmore at the time. And it was also kind of Wes Anderson's first big coming out as a filmmaker, even though it, you know, it wasn't his first film. It was when... And again, even as I'm saying that, I'm belying the idea that like, it was the first one I was aware of. It was the first one that where I was like, oh, there's this guy. And then I went back and watched the older movies. But somebody who was 10 years older than me is sitting at home going, I already knew about that guy with Bottle Rocket and I dug it more. So screw your Rushmore. And I feel like everything is- Right, Bottle Rocket is the bleach of Nevermind to Wes Anderson. Well, and for every, for every, that's every person's experience is going to be just a little bit different. And for instance, I, I, I'm not a big Rushmore guy. Like I think it's good. 
But Wes Anderson is such a cult figure in our household that my wife and I and our two kids regularly, we made a couple years back and we regularly update our rankings of Wes Anderson movies. Oh my God, he is such a jackass, Matt. I, like, the, oh my God, I'm triggered, I'm triggered, I'm triggered. I can't talk about it anymore. This is why you hated the movie, because- I'm triggered. Because you already don't like him. Well, no, see, I would argue it's the opposite because I already don't like him or am just annoyed at him. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna enjoy this movie. We're gonna go out, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna enjoy it. And from like the first fucking (laughs) symmetrical shot, you know, it's like, wow, it's symmetrical. This is so mind blowing. Is there also a way for you to direct the actors to show no emotion or actual? You're absolutely proving though the point that like art is not only subjective, it is so specific to like the micro moment that you are living in and and the culmination of all your experiences affect how you are able to enjoy this thing that is in front of you. And, you know, as somebody who loves film, but also the same way that I approach most things, I don't think of myself as like a... What, what, what's the word for the for film? It's not audiophile, but like... Um, oh, cinephile. Cinephile, sure. I'm just too lazy to be any file of any kind. So it's like, I'll get really into something. When I put out my first record in 98 called Baseball Song, and I put a picture of a baseball player on the front, and there's a the whole packaging was made to look like a baseball scorecard. And sure enough, like the release show... There's like these middle-aged dudes that like want to talk like statistics with me out in front of the show and are like asking me about my favorite, you know, player's number. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the, I don't know any of this. I love, as with most things, I love the romance of the thing. And then I'm just not, I'm too lazy to dig in and like learn that much about whatever the thing is. So I love film that just makes me feel a certain way, but I'm not real smart about about it. Like I don't- It makes you feel like not smart enough and like it <laughs> makes you feel like feel nothing actually human. Well, right, that- but again, that's like, and I think there is a thing and I think the same thing exists in music. And I ran into this as a songwriter for years too, when I would have funnier songs, I would have funny songs, right? And then you get people that come up and they're like, Ugh, novelty songs. You're so lame. (laughs) And it's this weird like push pull. I don't know if it's a fear, a fear of letting something be playful or, or a true desire to hang on to something being more, you know, you want things to have meaning. You want things to be serious. And I know you're a writer who, when it comes to music, you allow some playfulness, you allow some, some humor in there. Totally. I, I would argue that knowing you, I know that some of your favorite artists are not that way at all. Like, as songwriters, you know, uh, Bono and Bruce Springsteen and Eddie Vedder are <laughs> all... <laughs> Bono is not what I have to... But Bono is hyper, not one of my favorite There's a hyper-seriousness to it, which is... Yeah. Which I get. But so when it comes to film stuff for me, the thing with Wes Anderson that I'm sold on is that whatever, I don't know what you call it. I don't know, I know that there's long form essays written about what he, what his thing is called, but like, whatever that is. Being a jackass, I think it's called being a jackass. Being an elitist, 
Hollywood insider. To me, it, it reads as playfulness. Like there's a humor to it that right. there's a humor and a symmetry and a there's a part of my brain that's very organized that I think when I see all of his clean lines and and totally fabricated scenes and like it just makes me so happy in a way. Weirdly, <clears throat> it makes me happy in a way that I'm so overjoyed by knowing he exists. So it's the antithesis to your anger over it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Like remembering that Pearl Jam exists makes me angry. Like the right. idea- And Pearl Jam is awesome. Pearl Jam is so much better than Wes Anderson. <laughs> I, it's like, it's like impossible. Okay, but great. But clearly yeah. art is objective. <laughs> right, well, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> I, it's a great, yeah, that's really interesting. But don't, do you, you can't deny, Matt, that in any given artist's catalog, let's take Pearl Jam, for example. I don't know why we would, but all right. <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> ten, I can't speak to any of it because I've never really heard any of it, but go ahead. 10 or Versus or probably Vitalogy. That's, this is actually a perfect point to ask the question because it seems like objectively the world at large would say those are better quote works of art than lightning bolts or uh i don't know whatever happened later but it to your point it was completely about the cultural moment they were like the biggest band in the world it was flannel it was seattle after they were even like whatever there was a context that made those albums feel what they were i was in junior high school wearing flannel on the bus listening on my walkman you were older than me and they were already just dumb and like a corporate shill band you know this is where it's not even just the time that something is introduced but it's who are you in that time and as we know it's like that difference from being 12 or 13 years old and being 19 years old as an adult it's not as big of a difference but when you're a kid that's a massive difference. Yeah, huge difference. Like I was I was listening to the Breeders Pod produced by Albini while you were listening to Pearl Jam, which I was like Pearl Jam's corporate. Like it, it's Right, and I was introduced to Albini when he produced Nirvana's album. Right, which by that point I'm already don't care about Nirvana. At that point when you're getting into them, I'm like, "Eh, Bleach was great. Nevermind was pretty good. Now I just don't care that they're like a MTV unplugged band." And the two songs that we wrote together I think two, right? Accidental Thief and When It's Time to Go. That's That sounds about right. So if you like were just about to leave your 20-year marriage or something, and you saw you play When It's Time to Go, and then the next song you played was Accidental Thief, maybe you cried during When It's Time to Go, and then just spent Accidental Thief wiping your tears and thinking about how amazing that last song was because of the context of where you are? No, I mean, and, and again, I think- Not you, but like the person watching. I think somebody leaving a 20 year marriage, so by default, they're 40 to 50 years old at least, I don't think is listening to songs the same way a 17 year old is. The, the songs like that, the songs like Accidental Thief or the Skeleton Trees one are both of that ilk that I think they're gonna be more meaningful to a melodramatic teen or twenties, because that's the way they read. That's the way it comes off to me, even when I sing it. And I don't think that that's incorrect to be singing that feeling, but like at this point, I feel like if, <laughs> if knock on whatever, if I'm, if I'm like leaving my wife at this point, looking at, at 50 years old, 
I think I'm just still listening to the jazz piano by Ahmad Jamal that I was listening to yesterday. Like, I don't think uh, like I'm, I don't think I'm dealing with my emotions by listening to singer songwriters. Okay. But that's, that's, (laughs) go with me here though. You're in the audience because I'm trying to help you make your point. I don't, I don't believe that that's true. I believe that that 95 out of 100 people would prefer accidental thief <laughs> the one it's time to I love go this 95 prefer, out of 100 uh. yeah i don't know why it's 95 out of 100 but it's but it, i think about this a lot it's actually the thing i think most about when i just wonder about art why are there some things i mean this you can't deny this is true that culturally we've decided these are the 100 best albums and there's like one album by some artist on there and that artist has made 20 albums why is that the one that's the best album why is the mona lisa the one we talk about and there's a bunch of other freaking paintings of ladies is it culturally is i mean it could be that it's just whether it's culturally relevant is what makes it this is something that pops into my head a lot more and more lately if you're i know you don't look at social media a lot these days but but in the era when you were when you're looking at social media, do you ever think about the people that aren't there? Oh uh, yeah, I love thinking about that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's a great point. Great point. Because right now you're one of those, you're generally one of those people. Yeah. And so when you're looking at that, you know, Danny Barnes has this great quote that like, if you're in a nightclub playing music and the majority of the audience gets up and leaves, it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. And I love that. As a musician, I love that because I mean, what I play is generally palatable to most people because even if they don't like it, they're like, well, I'm not going to run from this. Right. You know, I might talk over it, but I'm, I'm not going to leave. And Danny's in a more experimental world where that happens sometimes. And there's a lot of music I love that falls into that group. And he's right. You're not doing anything wrong. And I would go so far as to say that there's stuff from that group that there are groups of people on planet Earth they're not 95% of people, but there are groups of people that think that that is the best thing that's ever been made. Right. And that's an okay, not only is it an okay belief, but it's just a belief. It's just an opinion. I mean, I totally agree with that. All those hundred lists are, is just some person who chose to be there instead of to not be there. So I'm, you know, I'm reading this great book right now about the top 100 baseball players of all time. And I love all the preface to it is this guy. Oh, wow. What is so good? Who's number one? I'm, I haven't skipped ahead. I don't know. I'm in the okay. <laughs> right now. Um, I think I, know, I think I know, but I, you know, it's going to be. Is Kirby Puckett on there? He'd be in like the top, like 80 or something. He's like probably that. in there. I haven't got to him yet, but. Um, oh, wow. But the point is like, generally I hate lists. Right. Even then, how do you say these are the 100 best? And so all this guy's saying what the book is, the premise of the book, and it's really beautiful if you love baseball, is it's not, I mean, it is, it's the 100 people that this guy thinks are the top 100. And he's a great uh, sports journalist and a really brilliant writer. But he's also like a lot of baseball fans. He's in it for the romantic, the romanticism of baseball and the religion of baseball. And so there are people that are left out that like he's like well that they just weren't my you know everyone in there you could make a case that they belong in the hall of fame some are some aren't but there are people there's like vehement disagreement but he goes look if you put two baseball fans in in a room together they're going to disagree about about something and it's the same with music it's the same with movies it's the same with wes anderson good lord (laughs) for me music is a little too close 
So when I see the hundred list of whatever on Rolling Stone, like for a multitude of reasons, I'm not going to read it. I don't care what Grail Marcus or some guy or some whoever thinks are the best records of all time because I've now been a, a really deep dive music fan for almost 50 years. And there are things I know that I love that I also know that most people don't care about or know about and actively don't like. And I've moved so far past the whole, like, there's not even a remote chance that there are things that I love that I only love because they're cool or hip or outsider. Like, I don't mean to belabor my age, but like, I'm almost 50. I don't care. I don't care what anybody thinks about what I like. Like, if I think that the gold string by Devin Sproul is a better- Oh my God, I just have been freaking out over that again, because we're making a, my college friends and I make these like intermittent playlists. We made like CDs in college for each other and everybody gets to contribute and now we make playlists. Yeah. And for whatever reason, the last one has to be in this specific time frame. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, what? I was really asking myself like, between 2008 and 2017, mm -hmm. what albums were released that like, really took over my life like and i was just trying to think through them and then i i remembered oh my god there was like a month and then i listened to that album again yesterday because i'm trying to pick the song i can't pick the song i like i'm there are three songs that i want to include from that album i sometimes fantasize that some of those songs will become one song like they'll be morphed together because there's yeah. lyrics from Gold String as a concept, I think, is the best song, but there's lyrics from some of the other songs on that record that I want to be part of. God, it's so good. That album that we're talking about the song, is it the Golden th String or Thread? It's the Gold String. The Gold String, Devin Sproul, S-P-R-O-U-L-E. Oh my God, this album. Well, and here's the thing. Oh my God. There are music writers, journalists, whatever, that would write long, if they cared to listen to you and I talking about this, they would write long form F essays refuting why this is wrong and how context is a thing and blah, 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 blah. I, I will maintain that The Gold String is a better song than anything Bob Dylan ever wrote. Now, here's the thing. you It's easy to say that- Better, it, better. Right, exactly. But but that's the whole thing. Better only, only, only means an opinion. Right. It doesn't mean anything else. Here's like actually maybe proof of the fact that it's all context. Do you know what Rolling Stone's number one greatest album of all time was on the list of the top 500 albums? That was published in September of 2020. September of 2020. There are a lot of, pe a lot of people very sad and a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've got to assume that the that Rolling Stone magazine is probably the obvious thing would be to to air towards like Sgt. Pepper or Pet Sounds, but ooh oh Pet Sounds is number two yeah very that good. makes sense um, and Sgt. Pepper's got ooh wow Abbey Road is higher than I mean again we're talking about some one list, dude it's or, just one person yeah, like going I know, I know this is what I think about you know blah 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 the thing to remember is that all of those people. Are also, These are all great albums. They're also just some guy who was sitting in his room by himself, arguably more by himself than most of the rest of us because he's a music journalist. And so he is deciding what his favorite thing is based on so many hours of like listening to this thing over and over while feeling sad. 
Sgt. Pepper's is objectively the 24th best album ever made. Sure. So I think if you're skipping over, I mean, the fact is they're called Rolling Stone. So that means it's either going to be a Bob Dylan or a Rolling Stones album that is number one. We all know that it should be uh, Stevie Wonder songs in the key of life. That's number four. Yeah. The highest Bob Dylan album is number nine, actually, which is Blood on the Tracks, which I would agree that that is maybe Bob Dylan's quote best unquote album. Here's the, this is just amazing to me because it's exactly what you were saying about context. Is it live lightning crashes? (laughs) (laughs) This may very well be the best album ever made, but number one in September of 2020 is Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? Oh yeah, it's a great record. And the first line of the review is Marvin Gaye's masterpiece began as a reaction to police brutality. Right, of course. Okay, so it's a so the timing of of celebrating what would already be a, a record in the top ten from any writer of that era, absolutely. And and yeah, and I think once you when you get in lists like that, you get into the top ten or twenty, and it's going to be the same things just juggled differently. When I get to the beginning of this baseball book or the end, whatever, it's going to be either Willie Mays or Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or, you know, you know, it's going to be... Or Hank Aaron, maybe? Yeah, Hank Aaron's in there, but he's not... He he has a record, a specific record, but in terms of well-rounded baseball players, which so far it seems like that's carrying more weight than anything else. Also, just a lot of great stories. There's, this whole book is mostly like micro chapters with with great baseball stories i knew this was going to happen we're way over time on what i wanted to do and we didn't focus on co-writing co-writing okay so let's just bring it home here Home. (laughs) (laughs) yeah you were saying you don't have an agenda when you write by yourself even though you have songwriting games so that's kind of an agenda yeah but the agenda is not the theme of the song the agenda is to get something done right now it's not just like i said i've written songs where there's been a specific like oh i want to write a song for my brother or my wife or you know what i mean like those songs exist and some of them are fine like i don't think i don't think by default all the best songs are ones that you don't get in your own way but but did you did you ever end up reading that Tweety book that came out last year, the the write one song thing? Yeah, I actually listened to the audio mm, nice. book, which was him reading it, which was kind of fun. Yeah, I loved that. I loved I, I loved it. I mean, yeah. it's not it wasn't like a ton of new, new stuff. I feel like with any any book you read, that's like here's how to write a thing. There's a lot of the same stuff, which is great. I mean, and also it makes sense. With his, I felt there was a real hypnotic quality to the way that he wrote it a lot of repetition of ideas and kind of chaotic phrasing and but basically just to say this is a thing that's kind of indescribable so i'm gonna try to describe it while at the same time being vague and weird enough to give you a like an understanding of the feeling that you need rather than here's the rules right at the same time giving some actual concrete rules and so to me, writing songs is always like that. It's You can go out and write a song about a dragon if that's what you want to do. And it might be a perfectly good song about a dragon. But for me, the songs that I think end up being the best or the ones that I enjoy the most, which bottom line only matters to me. Again, and yeah, I love this because you're like songs that end up being the best. And I'm like, oh, I really want to hear what you're going to say. And then I'm like, 
well, wait, objectively the best no, or subject, just, you know? But you, all you can do is enjoy the thing that you're writing. There is that sense when you've written something that you like and then you play it and you go, oh, this feels like me. It sounds like me. I like this. Right. There will be an equal number of people that will go, I hate that and I hate you. <laughs> and the vast majority of people that will never hear it. So it's part of the reason your Rolling Stone writers are able to weigh in with a list that awards a thing. That thing has been heard. Those top 10 things, those top 50 things have been heard by the majority of people in this country over the last 30 years, which Devin Sproul doesn't fall in that category, nor do I, nor do you. Which is good and which is good and bad, you know. Right. I want Devin Sproul and Paul Carreri to get all of the royalties that Spotify pays out for just one month for that album. <laughs> I feel like they just need that album is freaking incredible. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's just so beautiful. But don't again, going back to the context idea, and I've thought about this over and over, and and sadly there's no I was listening to one of those brain podcasts the other day where they were talking about how memories are made and how you, mm. how you form these connections. And like, there's no way to extricate the fact that I know Devin and I like Devin from how I feel about her songwriting and music. I'm not saying that I don't agree. You and I agree that that's a great song and it's a great album. And I've played it for people that have been like, yeah, this is cool. You know, I've also played it for people that really loved it. I don't know what the different pieces are that were there or not there for different. You know, what's interesting about that? That makes sense in the context of what we're talking about with these more well-known lists. It's like, I'm sure everybody at Rolling Stone knows the guys in Pearl Jam and I'm sure they hang out. And so like when Pearl Jam puts out a new album, they're like, God, I love Eddie, like where he is in his life right now. It's like, he's really he's really found a place of contentment and like he's grown so much there's a that's all we, any of us get i mean if if you get a thing if you get reviewed or you get played part of it is coming stemming from a personal connection and then if that personal connection is is utilized it can be broadcast to wider audiences but you're also any reviewer worth their salt is like capitalizing on this idea that the reader knows them and trusts them. So like, and, and again, this, this boils down to my love of Wes Anderson, because at this point, I just, the guy could do anything. Triggered. Like, I'm triggered. I just don't I'm care triggered. what he does. I'm going to enjoy I'm it. I'm triggered. <laughs> but, so, okay. So the, this is interesting. I was just, I'm just paging through the top 50 and I'm seeing if I, I was just trying to prove my point about there's some objectivity around what is the best album of any given artist, but they put kid a higher than okay. Computer. So what's that about? That's just them like trying to be cool. I don't know. Again, that's another band that like I didn't dislike them, but I and I enjoyed the record that I had, which I think was prior to both of those. All right, I just disproved my point. It's all subjective. Never mind. <laughs> well, I mean, so have you, you? You know these people on the internet that ask questions. Like, there's a guy on Twitter. I don't. I don't remember his name, but he. I don't know why he is famous or has followers, but he basically just asks questions and then people answer the question and retweet the thing. And that's what he does. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's often a lot of list oriented questions, you know, basically boiling down to like desert Island records. 
or books or movies or whatever. So somebody put one up the other day and the, it was the phrasing of it that was different to me, but they basically said, what if you had to listen to the same record for the rest of your life? What album would you choose? What if you had to listen to one album for the rest of your life? So immediately my first thought was, I hate questions. I hate the internet. I hate everybody. And I, you know, ignored it. Later I was thinking about it and I thought, that's it. Okay. I don't like making lists of my top five favorite records of all time or whatever, because I maintain that my taste is always changing. The things that I like is, are always changing and I don't want to commit to, and I'm a musician. So to me, it feels too close to like commit to those five or those 10 or whatever. I'll do it with movies or whatever. Cause I'm not, I don't feel, uh, um, I, I don't feel attached to it in the same way, <clears throat> but something about this question and the framing of it was what if you had to? And so my first thought was, okay, if I had to, there are two records that over the course of the last 35 years, in a pinch, if I don't want to be bothered to think of what I'm about to listen to, I will just default go to those two records. What are they? One is uh, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, and the other is Ricky Lee Jones' Flying Cowboys. I'm not seeing either of those on this list. <laughs> no, I mean, Astral Weeks is definitely in the top 100 on Rolling Stone. But yeah, but again, it doesn't have anything to do with whether they're actually good or not. It's just right. they were records that I found at certain points in my life where they were more meaningful or I gave them meaning or whatever. But the point is, is that the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, wait, I don't like this question anymore. Because realistically, as soon as I thought of those two records, I was like, the real question is, if I had to listen to one record for the rest of my life, which record would I not want to listen to? Because as soon as I thought of those two, another 20 records popped into my head where I was like, ah, if I only had to listen to, if I only was able to listen to, I'll, you know, I'll throw you a bone and say, uh, U2 War, uh, which I, which I, I, you know, again, it's just my age, but the, the U2 records that I like are Boy and War. And, I don't, they're not my favorite records, but if there was some weird sentient godlike being that was telling me I could only listen, <laughs> only listen to one record. And I was like, uh, sure, I'll listen to that. Like the point is I love music. So if you stick me with a car that either has a tape that's stuck in it and it's all I can listen to versus a broken tape player that doesn't have anything in it, I'm going to pick the tape. Like just put something in there. So I have something to listen to because I want to listen to shit. So the question should be more like, what record would you absolutely take off the, like what record would drive you insane if you, had, <laughs> if you had to listen to it for the rest of your life? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so check this out. Some other guy made a list of all, se an aggregate list of all seven Rolling Stone best 100 albums of all time. Because they've been publishing these since the 80s. You oh, know? right. Okay, that makes sense. 87, 97. He like weighted them all, including the one from uh, the woke year of 2020. Yeah. All right. So that this is just interesting to me. Like the top 10, when you aggregate them all together, is all white guys, except for Marvin Gaye's at number six with what's going on. Mm -hmm. And Jimi Hendrix is number eight. Yeah. But the one from 2020, the top 10 are like miseducation of Lauren Hills in the top 10. Such a great you know. record. 
yeah but it's like there's all that kind of context too well i you know and i think that is like it's like three two beatles album three beatles albums one clash London Calling, Rolling Stones, XLM, Main Street's the best album ever made. You know, I mean, and it also, it's very different from day to day or week to week. What you're focused on or what you believe is the best thing around you. Again, while, while I'm adverse to kind of making the all-time list of, you know, this is, this is my favorite record kind of a thing, I think it's, it's very easy to say, I mean, right now, like uh, just the other day, I was listening to, to Purple Rain, the record, yeah. And it really, it's, it's, you know, I've been listening to that record since it came out and it's always been great. And it's pretty amazing when a record just stays great. Like when you put it back on 30 years later and you go, well, oh, it's still exactly as great as it was. Yeah. It's just so good. It's bonkers. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. So, but okay. So that is a little bit of what I'm saying is that Purple Rain is great. I don't think there's room. Is there room for the opinion that Purple Rain is not great? Of course. Okay. And I think the sliver of people that will believe that or feel that way. That just hate Purple Rain? Sure. <laughs> it's a small group probably, but there yeah. are people. It's a small group of people. So there is objectivity to the greatness of Purple Rain. No, there's just. Or I guess it's not family it's feud context. and we don't care about. It's all the context yeah, right, of like, right. again, the awareness, the sheer awareness of a certain thing takes away the ability to be objective about it. So any pop music that's getting played every right. I'm doing the Sirius XM uh, free three month thing on this new car we got, and I'm actually loving it, but I'm noticing that on the pop music channels, it's been so long since I listened to like kind of a, a radio a programmed radio thing and like, God dang, they play the same five songs every wow. day. Yeah. And, yeah. At first, I was like, "Oh, this is so cool!" Like, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing like the new Megan The Stallion and Doja Cat and all this like cool stuff that like I don't go out of my way to listen to at home, but it's on this channel and it's in the car and I'm digging it. It's like really good. Yeah. And then the next day, you're like, "Oh, it's the same four songs." And after like five or six days, I'm like kind of annoyed by it. But again, I'm a contrarian and I'm a whatever. Most of humanity wants to hear that same thing every five every, right. every day and that just instills in them like this is a good thing because i heard it a bunch it must be a good thing that's also a good point that's a great point the contrarian thing like what your spirit is is also going to affect how you encounter something try listening to something objectively it's very difficult and i'm not saying that you can but set set like an intentionality or a mindfulness to like sitting down with a record and i we, i did this not too long ago with sergeant peppers because we had just watched the whole Get Back thing, you know, that everybody was excited about Get Back and Kathy and I loved it. Um, and Kathy was pointing out how amazing it was to see these people that you mytho you grew up with you grew up hearing these songs over and over and over again and you mythologize these people and to just see them acting like normal people in the studio setting, all that hours of footage was fun. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying it was great or it was worthwhile or it was important, but it was fun. It was fun because in 1977, we discovered our parents' record players with copies of Sgt. Pepper's and Abbey Road and the White Album. I wasn't even born. I wasn't even created in my mother's womb. Right. But that's so my whole little sub generation loved the shit out of that movie because 
It's just a touchstone. It's a thing we can connect to. I put on Sergeant Peppers with the after watching this like 18 hours or eight hours or whatever it was documentary, because you do get to a point. There's a point for me in that when you're watching it, where you start thinking about celebrity and you start thinking about ego and, and narcissism and, and all of the things. And, and you start to wonder like, is this stuff actually good? And yeah, I mean, it's clearly something it's like, there's something here that people like, but it, but is there, and, and also like the real obvious overlaid, like, you know, these four white dudes that are, that started off by just ripping off, you know, rhythm and blues from the States that was all black music and to throw that in and then, and then have Billy Preston come in and play keys. And you're like, right. So they're even getting the, like the lending of this, like legitimacy to what they're doing, Totally. but is it good? Is it great? Is it whatever? And again, I, I, I stand by like objectively, I, I don't, I don't think it's possible to say, but I listened to Sergeant Peppers. And I've heard that record more than any single record in my life, probably. It was maybe the first vinyl that I put on my parents' record player. That is a goofy as fuck record. That is like, <laughs> that is some Dr. Demento Weird Al shit, start to finish, with almost nothing as a songwriter, as a musician, maybe not as a musician, as a songwriter, there is nothing in there that could not be just torn apart by any self-respecting songwriter as just garbage. Which is, I will say, I think if that record had been released by an unknown band in 1987, Rolling Stone and everybody else would have torn it a new one because they're like, what is this novelty garbage? But the timing of it, it coming out at this exact time, it coming out after Pet Sounds, all the experimentation that was going on within the music community, it made perfect sense. And nobody's getting down on the benefit of Mr. Kite. Right. And it's also almost impossible to have objectivity about it. Yeah. At this point. I mean, it's just well, certainly at this point. But my only point is with any of these records, go back and listen to something that you think is your favorite and you think you know why and try to listen to it with brand new ears, which sometimes is impossible. But I think like anything else, you can kind of trick yourself by focusing on musicality parts that you haven't before. Like, you know, just listen to Ringo's snare or whatever the fuck. But you can kind of, you know, it's like, uh, what's her name? Uh, the actress uh, uh, that was in My Cousin Vinny. Uh, what is her name? Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei. She, she was on like Carson or Leno when I was a kid. And she was doing a, a movie with Christian Slater. And she's a waitress in a Minnesota diner. Uh -huh. And I've always like held on to this because, you know, it's just the dumb interviews that they do where they're like, how, how did you do your hair to look like a Minnesotan or whatever? And uh, so the big question was, how do you how do you get into that Minnesota accent? And she said, she said, oh, I just have one phrase. Like the phrase that gets me in is smoking or non. <laughs> and, it, like, and it's 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 stuck in my head for the rest of my life. To where I can't not say it in a oh, Minnesota accent. Oh, that's so funny. That's perfect. Smoking or non? Right. Smoking or non? Non. <laughs> yeah. But, but the great thing is that that exists in music too, where if you just put on a record that you've heard a million times and you go, I'm just going to listen to the sax solo. You know, I'm just listening for the this bass part that I've never listened to before. It completely reframes the way you're listening to it. it it's hard to stay there, but once you get there, you can go, is this interesting to me or is this not interesting to me? Is this great? Is this pretty cool? Is this dumb? Is this silly? Is this hyper serious? You know, what is, 
what is my new relationship with this song now? It's yeah. There's something about, I mean, we're talking about recorded music. We're talking about albums. When I think about born to run, for example, I love all the songs on that album. The, the songs are so close to my heart. I've learned to play them all. I play them. They like mean something to me, but the actual document of those songs that is that album it's something about it i don't quite it doesn't quite work like it i don't like the way it sounds or something or it's like something about it is that's not what makes me love it but all that i get is that album so i guess that's what i get and that's the blueprint or you know like it's interesting that a song is i don't know it's almost like it's a screen i've always thought that about screenplays screenplays are not an art form in and of themselves. They are just a blueprint for a movie. I've always thought that must be frustrating for a screenwriter. It's like you make something, but then it's not anything. Right. But a song, you can go out and play and someone else can play and it can have a life. And it's almost like the album is the screenplay or something. The album is the, yeah, here's like a snapshot. Here's like, let's just, let's get a picture of it. But then it has this life. You play it differently. It, it grows beyond the album or something. Well, sure. And I wonder if, if some of the criteria probably for these list makers can tend to be looking at the album as, as the work of art, yeah. as opposed to getting lost in the weeds of like, were these songs good, you know, what the other context. And again, I still, you know, I still think that varies widely, but but I, there are certainly records that I think are works of art where I don't care about seeing the person live necessarily, nor have I ever thought that the songs were the best songs. But but sometimes there's just an album that like... Well, Sgt. Peppers is a great example of that. I don't know, like, are people like going... Like, does Mr. Kite have a beautiful life as a song out in the world? No, see, that's... I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Is that that album and the White Album... Um, there's so many of their albums, really, once you get past the, the early rock and roll era of the Beatles, a lot of their records are so all over the map. And again, I think that the there would be no patience for that in a modern reviewer who I've just watched. I've, I've read reviews of records that I thought were great in the last 20 or 30 years of people going, eh, they can't pick a genre. Eh, they can't, you know, as though there's some rule to to what we're all supposed to be doing. And so it's so weird that like we completely let it ride for this whole, for this whole like stretch of the 60s and 70s where it was like I mean just do whatever the fuck you want and everything's great you know well man I mean now you're getting into it it's like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts thing the Beatles are the great Beatles albums are kind of a great example of that but th- then you get into this it's like the way technology changes the art form. I mean, has Spotify, (sighs) what is an album anymore? It was only 45 minutes because that was the limitations of vinyl. (laughs) I would say that's the limitations of my patience also. Well, totally. I mean, I, but, but it just happened to be that that's what you could fit on a 12 inch vinyl. Yeah. Um, And that just became the thing. It's the same thing as movies. It's like now that, a movie can be a 10 hour streaming event. It's like, how long would Goodwill Hunting have been if they'd made it for a Netflix streaming series? You know, it just would have been more of it's not your fault. Yeah. Oh it's my God. The map yeah. sequences. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. It's like, 
<laughs> there would have been a whole scene where you like a flashback to Robin Williams with his wife, you know, like it would have been a whole se- a whole episode, an hour of that, you know? Well, I mean, I think, I think we do know, at least with that art form, there are three and four hour movies and, and, you know, it's up to you to decide if that, if that's a terrible idea or a, or a brilliant idea, but like, generally speaking, I would say there's two, two, three hour plus movies that I've ever seen where at the end of it, I've thought, wow, that was faster than it seemed. And one was that I'm not a big Tarantino guy, but the hateful eight again, context, that movie, my friend took me to see it where they, they toured the country only in a couple of theaters to show it on the 78 millimeter or 35 mil, whatever the big format is. And we saw a midnight showing of that in Austin. And it's like a three and a half hour movie with an intermission because they have to change the tape. Yeah. And that was, but that was fun because it was an event. Like we were going to do a thing that was like, that felt fun. And then the Once Upon a Time in the West, the like Sergio, Leone, Sergio Leone Western uh, movie. Yeah, it's like, all context. Yeah. Never mind. It's all subjective. They did everything, I guess. The song, by the way, was not Skeleton Trees. It was When It's Time to Go, according to this McCabe's video. That's great. So somebody labeled it that put it up? Yeah, Wayne Griffith, the McCabe's guy. Oh, yeah, Wayne. Love Wayne, the sound guy at McCabe's. This was in 2012. So I'm going to include this in the audio. It's going to get some public. I'll include an MP3 of, oh, this, of this performance. I honestly don't remember it. I, don't um, e- I know that... I'm not doing anything. Skeleton tree. No, that wasn't in there. Hey, thanks for your time, Matt. This is supposed to be 15 minutes. This is going to be a nightmare to edit this. It's not like I'm Joe Rogan here and I just talk for three hours about the vaccine and then just release the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, you could. Are you boosted? Are you boosted? Uh, I, I've been boosted for a while. Great, right, good job. <laughs> um, what's your favorite song on your new album? What's the best song on your new album? <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's funny. I, there there hasn't been uh, much press on my new record, but I it got one review. I've gotten one review in a Texas. Oh, I saw that the tech. Yeah, what did they say? The guy just like straight up said like, this album contains the best song that Matt has ever written. It's the when the lights went out, and that's the best song. And that's it's funny because the other songs are very good also, but like that's the best <laughs> song. And when I first read it, I thought. Wait, <laughs> yeah, I I don't think that's the case. But then I was I was like, oh, what an interesting, that's an interesting take as a reviewer. If you want somebody to actually listen to somebody's whole record, is you proclaim something. I mean, it's just like these lists, right? The lists are done to get people pissed off, to get people arguing. Hundred greatest baseball is like to get people to read it and go, is my guy in there? No, why the fuck not? Right. And now it's just to click, to get a click to look at the albums. Yeah, totally. But what a great way to review an, a record by a basically unknown guy is to say like, this has the best song he's ever written. Yeah. So you're like inviting people to go, well, that's yeah, that seems like a thing to say. I should probably dig in and get to the bottom of this. But so for you, what is your favorite album? You've made a lot of albums. What's your favorite album that you've made? The one I just made. I mean, it's always the most recent one. Right. And which song on that? What is, what is, your, what is your counter to that? What song do you love on that album? I don't know. I, I, like, them, I like them all for different reasons, obviously. But um, yeah. 
I mean, I think I think Night Owls is my favorite song on that record. I love Night Owls. Although I really like the I like the one with Ida too. I like Heartbeat. Yeah, Heartbeat is the one with Ida. Yeah. All right. Well, listen to we. Everybody should go listen to We Imagine an Ending and decide if you agree with Texas Monthly that track five is the best one. Get some streams on this sucker. <laughs>